to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. I said, I think, last uh, Wednesday evening that this 40th chapter of Isaiah, which begins the new section of the book, which divides into chapters 1 to 39 and 40 to 66, this uh, particular chapter divides into a prologue of 11 verses, followed by the main sermon of Isaiah, the address which forms the bulk of this chapter, from verse 12 to the end. And you will notice that uh, the prologue takes us to the end of verse 11, and then Isaiah starts uh, asking his questions or throwing out his challenges, a little bit like the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. Uh, if God be for us, who can be against us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And so he goes on. It's the same kind of style. Now, last Wednesday, we just introduced ourselves to this section of Isaiah and looked at the key verses 1 and 2. They tell us that even though God's people is uh, under his chastening hand and they are being disciplined by him because of their disobedience and are exiled into the land of Babylon, God's purpose is ultimately still to save and restore them and bring them into the riches of his grace and into the embrace of his love. God's strange work, we were finding in Isaiah last week, is judgment. His great delight is salvation. This is God's purpose in the world. His purpose is blessing. He delights to bless. He hates to judge. And we need to grasp this picture of God. And here Isaiah is uh, speaking of the purpose of God from chapter 40 onwards to bless and save his people. And so over the span of all these years, he speaks to the condition of the people of God under the chastening hand of God and brings them the hope of his salvation. And verses 1 and 2 introduce this. He is commanded, Isaiah is commanded to speak tenderly to the heart of Jerusalem and tell them that their hard service has been completed, that their sin has been atoned for, that God is now ready to draw them back to himself again. Now from verses 3 to 11, the remainder of the prologue really consists of two voices. You notice how they both introduce verse 3 and verse 6. Verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert prepare the way for the Lord. And verse 6, a voice says cry out. So there are these two voices that really uh, complete the prologue, the introduction in verses 1 and 2, and then these two voices. The first voice is the voice who is the one who is the servant of the Lord 
sent by God to prepare the way for God to come as Savior to his people. Now you'll realize this is what the whole of this section of Isaiah is about. God coming as Savior. And he comes into the desert where they are and brings them salvation. And the picture that is here is really the picture of a king who is coming to bring his people back to himself again. And as he comes in his kingly majesty and his saving grace, there is a preparation that is to be made for his coming. Now we know, of course, that the ultimate fulfillment of what Isaiah is here speaking about is in Christ. And not just in Christ's first coming, because the first and second comings of Christ are often elided in the prophets. And here, certainly in Isaiah, there are some of these things that will not be fulfilled until Christ's return in glory. But it is ultimately of Christ that Isaiah is speaking. And we know, of course, uh, from the New Testament that above all other places, this prophecy of the voice crying about the preparation for the coming of a Savior, whether a Savior from Babylon or a Savior from the infinitely worse bondage of sin, that voice of preparation is fulfilled in John the Baptist. And you will remember it is John the Baptist who in John chapter 1 verse 23 identifies himself as the true fulfillment in relation to the Messiah of this uh, promise. When they said to him, Who are you? In John 1 22, give us an answer to take back to those you, who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, it is the preparatory work for the coming of a distinguished visitor that is the background to all this. And it does appear that there is some tradition of the habit of making the rough, places plain and smoothing out uh, both great holes in the road and great hillocks in it so that the king might come to perform this task of salvation. And of course, what we are intended to see here is the preparatory work in the souls of people before God's salvation in all its fullness comes to them. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, he says. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Now, if that is fulfilled, chiefly in John the Baptist, which the New Testament makes absolutely clear, we then can understand what this preparation is. Because, of course, we know that the ministry of John the Baptist 
is primarily a ministry of repentance. This is what John came preaching. He came preaching repentance. And I don't think, I'm sure we are not intended to try to interpret every detail of what Isaiah says or is told to say in verse 4, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground becomes level, the rugged places plain. The main thrust of what the, the voice says is that there is a preparation which needs to be made for the coming of the Lord of glory. And that preparation is, of course, a preparation in the soul. And it is a preparation of repentance. And it's a very significant thing, if you ever have the time to study it, to see the relationship of John the Baptist and John the Baptist's ministry to Jesus. Jesus clearly recognizes this ministry that is described in Isaiah. Um, you get all sorts of uh, illustrations of this, but here is one, for example. Do you remember how uh, they came to Jesus and said to him, challenging his authority? By what authority do you do this? They say, we want to get to know something about you. We want to know whether we can really believe you. By what authority do you do this sort of thing? And Jesus didn't say to them, by this authority, by the authority of my Father, and begin to explain to them so that they would be convinced. Do you remember what Jesus says to them? He says to them, what about John the Baptist? The ministry of John the Baptist, he says to the high priests and all these others. Was it from God or was it from men? And they're absolutely silenced. They can't answer. And the scripture tells us why it is that they can't answer. They think if we say it's of men, then they feared the people because everybody respected John the Baptist. If they said it's of God, then he will say to us, why didn't you believe him? Why did you not repent? Because there was no way in which it was possible for them to hear Jesus until they had heard John. You see. Now I'll tell you another interesting thing in Scripture. All sorts of interesting um, things that you find about John the Baptist and Jesus. Do you remember how Jesus came before Herod? Um, you may want to look this up. Uh, in Luke chapter 23, <coughs> Luke chapter 23, and verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions. But Jesus answered him not a word, it says. Didn't say a word to him. Now, the reason for that, if you look back to Luke chapter 9, 
and verse 7. Herod, the Tetrarch, same Herod, heard about all that was going on. This is of Jesus, you see. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. But you see, what Herod had done was to silence John. And when Jesus appears before him, Jesus has nothing to say to him. And there seems to be this principle that goes through Scripture, that if you will not listen to John, you can't hear Jesus. And this is the significance of the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. What he is really saying, in other words, is there is really no salvation apart from repentance. And that's a really important principle. In days when people are diluting the gospel... See it historically. They preach faith without repentance, discipleship without cost. And this is what Isaiah is concerned at the very beginning of this section on salvation to avoid. So here is the message of John the Baptist. The second voice seems to be from God to Isaiah telling him to cry out. That is to speak out. It's repeated in uh, the um, ninth verse. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah. And Isaiah says, what shall I cry in verse 6? And the answer is then given. It concentrates on the one thing that Judah was refusing to see. And the second part of the remainder of this, uh, this prologue deals with this theme. That is the passing, temporary, weak nature of man and the eternal, permanent, glorious character of God and his word. Notice what he says, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Now that's the great message, you see that the people of God were needing to hear, that the human strength in which they had been putting their confidence for so long was like the grass that grew up so bright green and then withered and died away. 
And the only thing that really lasts, God is saying to them through Isaiah, is God and his word. And this is going to be developed as the chapter goes on and as the remainder of Isaiah goes on because only God is able to save. Only his word is reliable and lasts. And so the message that Isaiah is given is really summarized in the end of verse 9, the beginning of verse 10. Behold, your God, see the sovereign Lord comes. Now notice how he comes. He comes with power, but he comes with gentleness. Verse 10, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. But then in verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Now, there is little doubt that one of the great problems with many of God's people in this age was that they had come to think of God in a distorted way. They imagined that his power was the kind of brute force that they were used to in the nations round about them. Whereas Isaiah is seeking to show them that the power and strength of the Lord which can crush when he extends his hand in judgment, is really there in order to bless his people. It's a strength that shows itself primarily in tenderness. And it's a strength which is best seen in the picture of the shepherd which is the great biblical picture for God. He is the shepherd king. And his shepherdly love and care is such that he deals with the lambs, gathering them in his arms and carrying them close to his heart. And the strength of this shepherd of Israel is revealed in his tenderness. That's where strength is truly revealed, incidentally. Not in brute force. Not in the kind of fleshly energy. But in the tenderness that you find in the heart of God. There are some beautiful pictures of that in Scripture. But let's look on to the substance or at least the beginning of it, of Isaiah's message. Verses 9 and 10, he is saying, Behold your God, behold the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he comes with gentleness. Now, the rest of this chapter is composed of Isaiah's prophetic message about the incomparable greatness of that sovereign God. And you will see that from verse 12, he is telling the people that the Savior God who is coming to lead them out of captivity 
is none other than the Creator God. That's the great link in chapter 40. The Savior God is the Creator God. So you get so much emphasis on this chapter on God the Creator. And it is not, you see, as though something is happening suddenly that's altogether of a new dimension, that a new figure is appearing on the scene to be the Savior. It is the Creator who is becoming the Redeemer. That's what Isaiah is saying. And one of the reasons that we fail to grasp the glory of God's salvation is that we have failed to grasp that it is the Creator the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who spoke and the earth and the heavens were formed. It is this God who is setting about our salvation. Now that's Isaiah's message. Who do you think I am is what he is saying. For example, in verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? It was me, he says. I created them. Now, that's exactly what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, it is the same God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see how Scripture, New Testament as well as Old, combines together God the Creator and God the Redeemer. Now, evangelical Christians by tradition are very strong in their thinking about God the Creator, God the Redeemer, but they're very weak in their thinking about God the Creator. And yet this is one of the great means God uses through Isaiah of strengthening faith, you see. How do you come to a strong faith? Well, I'll tell you. The way that you come to a strong faith is feeding it on strong truth. Faith feeds on truth. And the strong truth that we need to feed our faith on is the truth of God's character. That's how we need to have strong faith. Increase our faith, says, let it say, the disciples to Jesus. And Hudson Taylor picks up their question and says, it is not great faith we need so much as faith in a great God. And that's true. And this is what... Uh, Isaiah is saying, verse 28 of the same chapter, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So here is uh, the revelation of God as the Creator. Now, Isaiah displays the greatness of God to us in this passage by relating four elements of God's greatness to the created order. Uh, let me tell you what they are, and then I think we'll just talk about one of them, 
and I shall have mercy upon you and do the other three next week. One is his uniqueness within the creation. That's verse 12. Notice how he does it with questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Do you know anybody else in the universe who has done this? Isaiah is saying, and the answer obviously is no. Then, secondly, his independence of the creation. Uh, notice verse 13. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? or instructed him as his counselor. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Now you know, the first thing we say when we come across some brilliant mind is either, what school were you at? Or where did you go to university? Or who was your tutor? You know, Because we recognize that we're all dependent, aren't we? None of us despite what some intellectuals may think, none of us is an original, untaught mind. We are all dependent, you see. And Isaiah says, now that's the one great distinction that God has. He is independent of his creation. Third thing is his supremacy over the creation. Now he spends some time on that from verse 15, Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. That is compared to God. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Now the reason he is emphasizing that, of course, is that man's natural tendency is to pride and self-inflation and great ideas about himself. And here... Isaiah says, in the presence of God, we're all cut down to size. You know, the place where humility is born is not in thinking little thoughts about ourselves. That can sometimes be a distorted way of thinking. The place where true humility is born is in thinking great thoughts about God. That's where we begin to learn biblical humility. So he speaks at some length about the supremacy of God over creation. And then, finally, his sovereignty over the creation. He speaks of the Lord who is the everlasting God. He, for example, brings out the starry host by number, verse 26. Uh, he calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. That is, God summons the stars even to appear. He is the sovereign Lord over the creation. Now look at what he says about the uniqueness of God within creation. You'll notice he asks five unanswerable questions to establish the absolute uniqueness of God in the created world. And they all relate to the measuring of creation and display God as infinitely great 
in comparison to it. What they do is to challenge us to stop thinking about God as though he were a person like ourselves. Have you ever thought about that danger? It is true that God is a person. It is not true that God is a person like us because we have limitations that God does not have. And here Isaiah is speaking about his uniqueness within the creation. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, do you see, the whole thing's ridiculous, of course. Who could ever have measured all the oceans and the seas in the hollow of his hand? But he says, God does. Or with the breadth of his hand, that's a span, you know, about six inches, isn't it, they say. With the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. And he is picturing God. It's, it's partly uh, uh, irony, sarcasm, humor. He is picturing God marking off the heavens with his hand and says, Who has done this? God has done it. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? or weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance as though he had Everest, you know, and Kilimanjaro on either side weighing them and saying which is the heavier. This is this somewhat playful picture that he is producing of the greatness of God compared to the puny smallness of man. And of course, uh, it is an important thing for us to grasp this danger of thinking of God as a person like ourselves. Do you know how the psalmist complains of this, or God does through the psalmist in Psalm 50, verse 21, when the people of God had lost their vision of his greatness, he says, You thought I was altogether like yourself. So Isaiah challenges them to see something of the immensity of the Creator. Now, what helps to correct this, as I say, is the doctrine of creation. Let me say a word about that before we finish, because it's one of the things that God uses to encourage his people to trust him. And it's one of the things that godly men in the Bible use as an argument with God to hear their prayers. Have you ever noticed this? So it's used in two ways. It's used by God. For example, here in Isaiah um, 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So when his people are saying... In verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. It seems as though God is doing nothing for me. He says, do you not know that God is the creator of the ends of the earth? And so his argument is, you see, if God has formed the universe, then surely you can trust him to do this small thing for you as one of the creatures that he has made? Isn't this something that should feed your faith, do you see? But then it's used not only by God to persuade his people to trust him, 
It's used all over the Bible. Notice uh, an instance in the next book of the Bible, in Jeremiah chapter 32 at verse 17, where Jeremiah prays. Now, do you notice the argument that Jeremiah uses with God? Here is the ground on which he pleads with God. You notice he approaches God and there is a certain ground on which he stands. And here it is in verse 17 of Jeremiah 32. Ah, sovereign Lord, he says, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, how has he come to of this view of God? Because he is the Lord who has made the heavens and the earth by his great power. Exactly the same thing happens in Acts chapter 4, you may remember, when the apostles are praying. And when they come into the presence of God, the authorities have commanded them no longer to preach in the name of Jesus. And they come into God's presence and they say, Sovereign Lord, please get us out of this mess. Or stop the mouths of these authorities or whatever. This they begin to use an argument with God. They say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. They are speaking of God's created power. And then they turn to their enemies round about them and they say, Now behold their threatenings and grant to your servants that with boldness they may make known your word. Well, that's the answer, you see. It is a strong conviction and a new vision of God, the Creator, that we need. And a recognition that the one who has come in Jesus Christ to be our Redeemer is the Creator of the ends of the earth. That's why John begins his gospel in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And now He sets about the new creation. And that's what gives hope, my brothers and sisters, to the weakest and neediest child of God, the one who has me in his hands, is the creator of the ends of the earth. There is nothing too hard for him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you and find you to be a Father, in your tender grace, we thank you that you are besides the creator of the ends of the earth, the Lord of glory, and our Father. Oh, come and feed our faith on this truth, we pray. And pour out your blessing upon us that we may lift up our eyes and behold who has created these things. Even our great Redeemer and Savior, 
We ask your blessing upon us as we part from one another this night in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our King and Savior. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.